Right, again, we'll be in Revelations 2. We're looking at the church at Smyrna. All right. And so, if you recall, just a, I think it was last week, we talked about these churches. And if, and if you remember, John wrote Revelation while he was on the Isle of Patmos. And you can barely see it. It's a very small island just to the west of Asia, or Asia Minor, which is basically modern-day Turkey, okay? All this is pretty much modern-day Turkey. And so Ephesus, we talked about last week, all right? So this is where Ephesus is, and today we're going to be talking about Smyrna. Notice that Ephesus and Smyrna are both, uh, both near water. They both had uh, port facilities. Oops. I'm going to lose this thing. And Smyrna is modern-day Izmir, Turkey. I, this is just stuff that I literally just copied and pasted from my geography class. Interesting enough, I was reading some older commentary, and they apparently for some time, for a long time, it was still known as Smyrna, at least till fairly recently, maybe from the, since the 16 or 1700s, but... Now, it's known as Izmir, Turkey. And we can read here that, you know, it had good harbor facilities, obviously, and it's kind of a protective cove there. And it was also at the end of a major road, surrounded by rich uh, farmland. But also pay note that it said that it was the city was headquarters for an imperial cult of emperor worship, all right? And so keep that in mind while we go through talking about the church in Revelation. And so you had this emperor worship. Also in Ephesus, there was an imperial temple that it said, I'm assuming there was probably some emperor worship going on there. They had the temple of Artemis, which was also Diana of the Ephesians, if you recall. And so obviously they would have a large Roman population, but there they also had a large Jewish population. All right. And so we know that Romans were antagonistic to Christianity. The Jews were as well, if not more so, antagonistic, all right? And also, um, this is a slightly, it's a smaller town uh, than Ephesus. If you recall, Ephesus, I think, was the fifth largest city in the Roman Empire, fourth or fifth largest city. Smyrna was not quite as large, but definitely a very large town. And also, if you recall that there were, uh, Polycarp, which was mentioned earlier today, he is said to have been martyred in Smyrna. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later on. So this is kind of the backdrop of Smyrna. What, what If you were dropped down in Smyrna, this is kind of what you would expect. A lot of unfriendly, uh, a lot of unfriendly to Christianity. Uh, individuals walk around a very unfriendly atmosphere in regards to uh, Christianity. All right, and so we looked at Ephesus last week, and I just wanted to reread uh, what we talked about. It says to the angel of the church of Ephesus, write these things: says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say that they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you, have persever- per- and you have persevered and have patience 
and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. For this you have, that you hate the deeds and manipulations, which I also hate. So, we start off, he's writing to the, to the angel of the church of Ephesus. He talks about that he who holds the seven stars walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. If you read earlier in chapter 1, towards the end of chapter 1, we actually know what these stars and the lampstands represent. The seven stars are the angels of the churches. The seven golden lampstands represent these churches. So he's... Jesus is saying he is in the midst of these. He knows what's going on. He's perfectly cognizant of all the things that are, that are going on in these churches. And he says, you've done a lot of good, but you left your first love. You, you've lost that zeal. You lost that fire, and you should repent of those things. All right? So he knows, and he's well aware. But then we get to Smyrna, and what we see with Smyrna is that a lot of these churches that we we'll read about, there's something wrong or a lot of stuff wrong. But with Smyrna, we don't really see that. And I was just telling somebody earlier today that I didn't really pay much attention to it, but I kind of realized that when I was looking at this, that this is this is the smallest passage in relate this is in relation to these churches that we see in Revelation. There's of all the other churches. You know, we, we'll have more verses. We'll have more f- things to talk about, more information. But we just have a few short verses here in regards to Smyrna. And it says, And to the angel of the church of Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation, and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer, Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. All right? So, going straight into it, Jesus is saying, and to the angel of the church of Smyrna write, these things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. And if you go through, you'll see that as he begins speaking to each church, there's a statement made. And it's usually, really, it's about his power and authority. And I don't think these statements are just general, generic descriptions that he's making. I believe each of these descriptions is very specific, and it should be something that we should be paying attention to in regards to the church in which he is talking talking to. Think about what we read with Ephesus. He's walking in the midst of them. He's, he's paying attention. So you may think that you're doing all right, but in actuality there's things that need to change. He knows. And here he says that, that these things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. Which is, you know, that's, it's, it's kind of an interesting statement here. So Jesus is saying, I am the first and the last. In Isaiah 48 and 12, there's the same similar statement that's made here. He says, listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, my call. I am he, I'm the first, and I'm also the last. 
So this is God, right? God the Father. If, and so we have Jesus saying, I am the first and last. I am God, all right? So there's a statement of deity being made here. But also, God, he was dead and came to life. So he was God, and then he died. So he was God, and he was man. And so he was dead, but he came back to life, all right? And so he had conquered death. And think about that in regards, again, to what we'll talk about, the things that are going on in Smyrna and the things that they are dealing with, and why this statement should be so important for them, that this is God, he died, but he came back to life. Death no longer has any power over Jesus, and he and they won't. And it, if they are faithful, they the death won't have any power over those believers. In Revelation one and verse eighteen it says, "And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead.'" And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Again, this statement, I am the first and the last. Nothing is before me. I'm eternal. There's nothing that's going to outlast me. I, I am on top. I am above everything. Again, he says, I'm, I was alive. I was dead. Now he says, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. There's nothing that's going to, there's nothing on this earth that if you are faithful are going to be able to, is, not, is going to keep you from heaven, from eternal life. Only we see your Jesus is, is making that distinction as to where your final eternal destination is going to be. There's nothing here. Satan doesn't have those keys. And so he has complete control. And so for those that are believers, that's a comforting fact. Unbelievers is a not so comforting here, and so he has the keys. And again, these statements of power and authority that he's making throughout uh, these these few chapters. If you just pay attention, I think I mean it's really very interesting. The statements that are being made here of making it clear of who he is. Going to verse nine, he begins he begins by saying, "I know your works." And I listed out, and really what we see is, for every one of these churches here, Christ is making a statement. He says, I know your works. I know what you're doing. All right? And so if you're, say, for example, if you're Ephesus, or maybe in Laodicea, or you're part of the church of Laodicea, you know, if you, if you well, all of us were a child at one time. If you, if you are a parent, you're probably aware of this. But if you see this picture of this individual kind of looking at those cookies, and probably a lot of us was has been in that same position at some point. We see those cookies. We know that we shouldn't be touching them, but we don't think anybody's looking. And a lot of times, somebody probably is looking, or they'll know exactly what's going on, and we just might think, you know, how did they know? And so for this individual... That's fearful. I mean, there's there's ought to be consequences. There's discipline that's happening because you stole those cookies when you shouldn't have. But on the flip side, again, if you're doing what you're supposed to, think about on a job. 
from my experience, a lot of people get to work and they're just like, I don't want to do anything because I don't get any credit, blah, 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 whatever it may be. From my experience, even if, if you don't think somebody's watching you, somebody's watching you. And if you're doing the right thing, somebody's taking notice of that sooner or later. Of course, it might not be that you get a big old raise or whatever, but somebody's noticing it, and they're paying attention to that. They're paying attention to the good, and they're paying attention to the bad. Jesus here, he's paying attention to all of it as well. And so for those in Ephesus or in Laodicea or these other churches, it's kind of a fearful thing that he's, he knows these things, and he's urging them to repent. And if you don't, he's going to remove their lampstand. But for Smyrna here... It would be a comforting fact. He says, I know your works, your tribulation, and your poverty. So he knows their tribulation. If you look over here at that chart, the little circle chart, uh, this is a chart of that word, that is that Greek word that is used for tribulation. And if you notice, if you kind of look through that, you'll see other ways in which that word is defined. And I think that kind of helps us to really understand what's being said here when he's talking about tribulation. It's used to mean affliction, trouble, anguish, persecution, being burdened, or distressed. Okay, And I think we would all understand that's what's being talking, talked about here. They're suffering. Uh, we have some that we'll read later on that know that they're suffering to the point of death. Uh, they are impoverished as well, so they're they're struggling in that way. I had this quote here, and I, we talked about Polycarp uh, a little uh, earlier uh, at the 9 o'clock class, and this would have been some time after uh, Revelation would have been written, uh, you know, according to when Polycarp supposedly died or whatever. But this was a quote from... A book, I would imagine, is written by a guy named Irenaeus. He was also mentioned. But he says, But Polycarp also was not only instructed by apostles and conversed with many who had seen Christ, but was also by apostles in Asia appointed bishop of the church in Smyrna, whom I also saw in my early youth, for he tarried on earth a very long time, and when a very old man, gloriously and most nobly suffering martyrdom, martyrdom departed this life having always taught the things which he had learned from the apostles and which the church has handed down and which alone are true all right so again we have to take these what's being said here with a grain of salt but if this is true he would have been a bishop of smyrna and he eventually suffered martyrdom all right and so uh, it's clear that i, I i'm just convinced that he's not the only one that was martyred here. There was other people. This is just the only one that's mentioned here. But we have outside evidence of really what was kind of going on in Smyrna for a considerable amount of time. That it was not easy being a Christian there uh, during that time period. All right, and so they were suffering all these things, uh, you know. And and we see, you know, really in the in that area of all the things in which Christians were uh, suffering. You know, it was, it was a first-hand experience of that. You know, of course, we think about here in America, we're like, well, if, if America falls, where else are we going to go? They, I mean, it's going to be real, and it's like it's some type of America that seems some type of safe space for Christians. And we don't have to experience all of these things. But notice, these Christians were suffering these things, and yet they were continuing uh, to be faithful. He also says that they are impoverished, they are in poverty, but you are rich, all right? 
So there's a contrast there. They're impoverished here on earth. They don't have a lot of stuff, but they are rich. Contrast that with Laodicea in chapter 3 and verse 17. He says, because you say I'm rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. All right? So those that were rich here, physically, financially, they were in need of something. They were physically wealthy, spiritually poor. With Smyrna, they're spiritually rich, even though they're physically poor here. And so, again, they have their faith. They're continuing. They're continuing to endure all the things in which they suffer. And, you know, what we see in James 2 and verse 5, it says, Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? I don't think God is, or James is saying that, that, it's impossible for the rich people to, to be saved or that this is a prerequisite for you to be poor or whatever it may be or God loves poor people more than he loves rich people. What he's saying here is I think what's going on here is with when you become wealthy, when you have all your stuff, when you have a good life, you have these inhibitions that just keep you from possibly doing the things in which are required. Think about the rich young ruler. He's done so much, but he was not willing to give up his wealth. There was something which he was, was not willing to give up. And so the things that I might have to give up in order to serve Christ, well, if, if, I, don't have, if I don't have much on this earth, it's really easy to do that. Uh, think about family relationships and how all and the things that are caused by that. If I have a lot of strong relationships that may be impacted by my decision to follow Christ. We think about all these other, you know, these black and white statements that are made in the Bible that all of a sudden, if family getting involved or my job or wealth become gets involved, all of a sudden it's a gray issue. And it's like, well, I don't know if God's really expecting me to do this or whatever it may be. And you can understand all of the excuses that can be made in order to keep wealth and then kind of have the vacate of serving Christ here. And so these individuals, they didn't have, they had very little and yet continued to serve. And then we again, we see the contrast with those who are rich that they needed something. They didn't have, they weren't as good off, well off as they uh, thought that they were. All right. And so they were rich in faith. They were heirs of the kingdom which he had promised to them. All right. So they had tribulation, they had poverty, but they were rich. And notice in, in verse 10, it says, Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And so they're going to, they're going to be suffering, and they are about to suffer some things. We also see that he talks about the end of verse 9. He talks about the blasphemy of, the, of those who are say that they are Jews. So apparently the Jews are playing kind of a, a primary role in this suffering, which if we look at the scriptures, that's usually something. Usually if there's some persecution happening, the Jews are involved with that. But he says that they're not really Jews. Uh, that they, and I think what he's saying here is if they were true Jews, they would be 
following God. They would, would be believing in Jesus. They would be they would have the same faith that Abraham had. That Paul, you know, Paul talks about in Romans chapter four, but yet we see here that they are suffering because of these who claim that they are Jews, but they are actually a synagogue of Satan, as he puts it. And so they're suffering. They're going to suffer persecution. Christ is saying, you're about to suffer some things here, and it's going to be bad. So don't, and he says, really, don't fear these things. You're going to be tested. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So you think about that. Why should we not fear future suffering? When I look at that, and if I was in Smyrna, why should not not just be like, I'm fixing to head for the hills. I'm out of here. Or I'm fixing, or I'm fixing to go on the ground, or whatever it may be. Why do we not fear that? And he says, uh, key here. He says you're going to be tested, and then also you're going to be given the crown of life if you endure. So you're going to be tested. That it helps to really help you to grow. Uh, you know, really helps you to mature in your faith. We see in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3 through 6, in a little different context here, but it's the kind of same idea. It says, For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted the bloodshed, striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. So when we are tested, or as here the writer puts it, we are disciplined or we are chastened by the Lord, these things are for our own good. That if we are being tested, it's not to make me fail, it's to make me get better. And we see here even this contrast that you have not here, what the writer is saying, you have not resisted the bloodshed. And so consider him, Jesus, who endured such hostility. He endured those things. Smyrna, it looks like they're about to uh, suffer, uh, suffer some bloodshed. And you look to him, that he's endured it so you can endure it. And if you endure it, you're going to receive the crown of life. John 16 and verse 33 says, These things have spoken to you that in me you may have peace, in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So again, he's talking to the apostles here. This is to be expected. In the world you will have tribulation, all right? Those in Smyrna should be expecting those things in which they are suffering. But again, he's overcome the world. Remember what we talked about in verse 8. I'm the first and last. I was dead, and I'm alive now. I have overcome the world. I've overcome death. And so through this, through this knowledge, I can have peace, that I know uh, that I can have this hope of eternal life uh, through Jesus. So we have tribulation here, poverty here, just overall not a good time here, but you have a reward there. You have a reward in heaven, in paradise. And then finally, it says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Again, I, I think like when we look at that last phrase and then in verse eight, I, this I think it's clear that this is what he. This is the reason why he makes these statements from the get go, is that you 
he's conquered death. He was dead. He was the, he, and he came back to life. And so you, he who overcomes, you endure, shall not be hurt by the second death. So what's the second death? We have first death. That's the death that we all suffer, physical death. Second death, spiritual death. So either eternal life or eternal condemnation, hell. And so those individuals that overcome, they're not going to be hurt by that second death. They're not going to be condemned. They're going to be in heaven uh, with God. And so, again, we see that here in this comfort and encouragement that could, could be had uh, through these words, that Smyrna is suffering these things, but recognizing Jesus knows what's going on, and he's saying, you keep on doing what you've been doing. You endure uh, you're not going to be hurt by this second death. And so that's all I had. I don't, again, I, this it wasn't very a long sermon, but I wanted to hit these points and really kind of drive this point home of they can endure. They can endure that if they're faithful to death, they're going to receive the crown of life. If we are faithful to death, we're going to receive the crown of life. And if there's anyone here who wants that, who does not want to be hurt by the second death. We certainly like to talk with you about those things, get to, to make those things right with God. And if you are a Christian, you don't want to be in the same spot, for example, of, of those in Ephesus or in Laodicea, that if they are, go astray, you have to repent. You're necessary to repent so you can become uh, get back in a right standing with God. And so if you're in that situation or if you just need the prayers of the saints, we certainly offer the time of invitation now as we stand, as we sing, will you come?